to where we were at in Genesis 24, leading up to that, God called Abraham to leave. He, had a, he lived in Ur, and it was in what is now modern Kuwait, which is near in the Persian Gulf, near Iraq. So he travels 600 miles to Haran. And eventually from there, he moves down into Canaan land, which is what is Israel today. So at this point in the story where we're at, Abraham has received the miraculous birth of his son Isaac, and he's settled in Beersheba, which if you know what a map looks like of Israel, it's about as far south as you can get in Israel. It's near the Negev, and it's just north of the desert down by the Dead Sea. So he settled there, and it says in the Bible that he has grown rich in flocks and herds and silver and gold and men servants and maid servants and camels and asses. So it said God had really richly blessed him. But he's getting old. And his wife Sarah, we're in chapter 24, in chapter 23 she dies and she's 127 years old. As we said last time, his son Isaac is how old? 40, in case you didn't remember, but he's 40. So Abraham's on his rocking chair one day, probably on his front porch, thinking, at 40, if the boy doesn't get married soon, I'm going to be trusting God for yet another miraculous birth. And I don't think my faith goes as far as believing that Isaac is going to give birth to his own baby. Probably thinking that. So he said, I better do something in a hurry and find him a wife. But here's the thing. He doesn't want to find Isaac just any wife, does he? He's not really in that big a hurry. So he knows that Isaac needs a wife to keep the promise of the seed going, right? But he wants to do things right. And so he wants to find God's choice for Isaac. He wants to do God's will. Wants to do God's will. And I want to say that I believe that that is what salvation does to a man. He wants to do God's will. A person will go from saying, I'm going to live and do what I want to do. I want to do things my way, my will. He'll turn from that and say, I want to do what you want me to do, Lord. Because we see that there is the, the pattern is set in the life of Paul the Apostle. He set out to do his will, and what was that? To kill and persecute God's people. And God strikes him down with a light. He falls to the ground. And what's the first thing we hear out of Paul's mouth that shows there's been a change in his heart? First thing he says is, Lord, what will you have me to do? And I think that's a good sign of salvation. And in essence, that's what Brother Hamilton was talking about on Sunday. Isn't that what repentance is? Going from your walking this way, I'm going to do my will, live how I want to live, do what I want to do, to where you turn and turn your back on that and say, Lord, what will you have me to do? And if you're really paying attention, in essence, that's what Jeff was saying last Wednesday night too. This verse was one he quoted or we read is 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And listen, if we're honest, didn't we all before we got saved, just live for ourselves and not live for the Lord? Well, that's the way Abraham was. Abraham, when he was in Ur, that was a wicked pagan culture, Ur of Chaldees. And the God that everyone there worshipped, and this would have included Abraham and his family, the God of Ur, his name was literally Sin, S-I-N. And God called Abraham out of Sin, city and you could say what was done in her stayed in her like they say of our sin city right what was done in her stayed in her except for Abraham because God called him out of her so he had to leave a pleasure me lifestyle to a lifestyle of doing God's will and that's the same thing we're called to do and I'm going to show you where it is clearly that's where we're called to do. So you're in 1 Peter 4. We're right there. So we don't have to turn anywhere. And let's look at 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 3. And it says, Therefore, as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, 
arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but how are we supposed to live? What does it say there? Are we reading it? To the will of God. That's how we're supposed to live. And he's saying, when he's saying that Christ suffered for us in the flesh, he's talking about on the cross when he suffered and died. And he says, likewise, we should be armed with that same mind, that same intent, that same purpose, that we're dead to our self and our fleshly desires. And now we live the rest of our time for God's will. The will of God, and that was Jeff's message, Brother Hamilton's message, and that is our message tonight. What it says there at the end of two, we should not live the rest of our time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. And look what he goes on to say in verse 3. So I'm saying God's called us from a life of pleasure, living for ourselves, living for sin, to do his will, because he says in verse 3, for the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of who? The will of God? No, in our past, we wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, reveling, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. And isn't that how we lived our lives? I did. I, I let the world, the Gentiles, that's speaking of the world, it shaped my life. It shaped the pleasures I had, the drinking I did, the partying I did, the music I did. And what is Peter saying here? He's saying, hey, didn't you get your fill of that in your past life, things that you should be ashamed of, and we are now? And he's saying that should, that should have been enough back then. And that's what he's saying in verse 2, that from here on out, we should be armed at that old man. We're glad he is dead. And from here on out, we're living to do the will of God, right? And that was the change that took place in Abraham. And if you're a Christian here tonight, that should be the change that took place in you and me. So after he left that Ur of Chaldees, the rest of Abraham's life that we read about in the Bible was what? He was dedicated to seeking and finding and doing God's will. And that includes what we're going to read tonight in Genesis 24, finding a bride for his son Isaac. So let's go to Genesis 24. If you'll turn there, just should be able to flip back there. So it's the story, this whole chapter is the story of Abraham's servant seeking a wife for Isaac. And through this story, what we've been looking at is God gives us principles on how to know or to find his will for our lives, right? And so did you know the Christian life is based on what? Is it, are we based on laws and having everything spelled out for us? I mean, our life should be based on principles, that are in God's word that the Holy Spirit will use to teach us what God's will is. But the problem is most don't want to live by principles. They don't want to have to find the principles that are there, seek the Lord by prayer, and being led of the Spirit. They want to have, and I've found this to be the case, they want to have every little jot and tittle of what they should do spelled out for them by a book, a minister, or a ministry, or some pastor. They come and they want you to tell them what to do. They don't want that responsibility themselves. You tell me that it's, and I, mean, I saw this at the school I was at, you tell me it's okay to drink beer. You tell me it's okay to marry this nice Catholic girl. You tell me it's okay because I want to, to go out west and become a, a spiritual mountain man and help and hunt elk the rest of my life. You, know, you tell me that life, that I can live that way. But here's the, here's the thing. We can live our lives based on what other people are telling us to do. And there's some people that are just really glad to do that. But here's the thing. That is an eternally dangerous position to put yourself in. It really is. Because Jesus repeatedly told us what? That we need to beware of false teachers. Now, I don't believe we have false teaching here. I wouldn't be here. But nonetheless... You, you depend on a man to tell you what to do, and you're in dangerous territory, right? Because this is what, we, we are personally responsible, aren't we? That responsibility, if you're old enough to understand the gospel, that responsibility to find God's will for yourself and seek the Lord for yourself is not anyone's but yours. And you're going to be responsible for the decisions you make, whether you do what someone else tells you to do 
or whether you do what God has shown you to do. Because listen to Romans 14. It says this, verses 10 to 12. We shall all, all of us shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. No one's getting out of that. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And then Paul says, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Every one of us, individually. Mine, I'd say if you're over 12 years old, you are not off the hook. You're old enough to understand the gospel. You're old enough to repent of your sins, to understand what sin is. It's been faithfully preached here. There's no reason not to understand it. It hasn't been preached in some complicated way, has it? And so we're all going to have to stand at some point, whether we die at the age of 12 or we die at the age of 80 or anywhere in between there, we're all going to have to stand before the Lord, the Bible says, and give an account of ourselves to God individually. And we just heard last week, it's going to be individual terror, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. That's going to be an awesome and incredible thing. So in light of this, here's a verse that we all know real well. How important is it to know God's will? Jesus said this. He says, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord. So it's not a prayer you made. It's not some profession of faith you made at one time. He says, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that's not going to get you in. That's what Jesus said. He said what? But he, and this is what we're talking about tonight, the ones that will make it into heaven, he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Because he says, many will say to me in that day, haven't we prophesied, done miracles, all these wonderful works? Try to present that as a case. That's not going to get you in either. Amen. Somebody in here seeks God and fasting and an anointing comes on them and they can pray and they, we see miraculous things happen in here. That's not going to get you in, is it? He says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these great things? And he says, then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So in light of what we're talking, is it a serious thing, an important thing for us all to know God's will and to be doing it? Seeking and doing the will of our Father? Because why does he tell them, depart from me? Because they didn't find and know God's will. But the question is, is it hidden? Is it that we can't know his will? And I'm saying I know the way things are. Most people do not bother to search things out for themselves. It's easier to go to ask Brother Hamilton or make a phone call to somebody or have some book tell you what to do. There's a lot of people out there that are more than glad to direct your life. But it's not hidden, it's in the book, so let's look at the book. Let's look at what we looked at. We'll read the same nine verses we read last week. Genesis 24, it says, And Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham, and we named them all, in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house, that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, my hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go into my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And the servant said unto him, Peradventure the woman will not be willing to follow me unto this land. Must I needs bring thy son again unto the land from whence thou camest? And Abraham said unto him, Beware that thou bring not my son thither again. The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spake unto me and that sware unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. And if the woman be not willing to follow you, then you shall be clear from this my oath. Only bring not my son hither again. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swear to him concerning that matter. So we looked last week, we said the first principle, and the, really the main principle, the, not the main, but I'd say the first and foremost, I should say it that way, to finding God's will is the commitment of not my will, 
but God's will only. And we see that that servant did that and found what God's will by doing what? Placing his hand under Abraham's thigh and taking a vow. And he vowed to do God's will in finding a bride for Isaac. He vowed, we said, to the God of heaven. He made that vow before God. And we said, made a, maybe the connection wasn't that clear. And I'm not saying placing the vow points to baptism. I'm saying, but in essence, we do the same thing. Don't we make a vow to God to follow his will and to follow him at our baptism? Isn't that our first public confession that we do that? That's the point I was trying to make. We pledge in doing that that we are going to be dead to ourselves and alive to finding his will, to walking in newness of life, right? That was what we just read, isn't it? In 1 Peter 4, that's why I turned to that. He's saying that's our responsibility now is to be finding God's will. No longer living in the will of the world like we used to, but living in God's will. And it's not a one-time act, though, is it, of doing that? It's a lifelong process. Every decision, we should be conscious that we're making, we're saying, it's not my will. That's the way I lived before. That's what we saw in 1 Peter. It's not my will, but thine will be done. And isn't that the way Jesus lived his whole life? I, I hesitate to bring that in because when you say that, then it's like, well, yeah, that was Jesus. We can't ever be like him. What we're supposed to be, it says he laid the example down. Didn't it in 1 Peter 2 that we're to follow in his steps? Jeff talked about that one night. Did a good job of explaining that. So we said George Mueller said that when he's ever seeking God in his will for anything, whether it was the orphan home or what, what places to teach, where to give money, he said getting his heart to the point where it had no will of its own was nine-tenths of the battle. That's the biggest part of the battle. And he said after he had totally surrendered his will to do God's will, he said it was just a short distance to find out what God's will was for him, the knowledge of it. And what did we read last? We said Paul in Romans 12, he begged the Romans, didn't he? By the mercy that God has shown you to place yourself on the altar. Because the transformation that takes place when you've given yourself to God and said, I'll do whatever you want to and allow his word to change you and transform your mind and deliver you from the will of the Gentiles. He said, when you do that, Paul said this. He said, then you will test and approve the will of God. You will be an example of someone that has been changed and tested and approved and is living the will of God. So that's the first step. It's the set of the sail. It's the determination that for the rest of my life on this earth, I vowed to be God's and his only, and I'm set to do his will, not mine. How many of us really do that? Seriously, in the decisions that we make. So that moves us to the second principle we find. And what I want to say about that is God's will, once we've committed to doing it, it is found, we'll see, in the parameters of his word. Now, some people are like, man, there you go, using those college words, parameters. I mean, it's not really that big of a word. But in case you don't understand it, let me give you an illustration but, of what I mean by parameter. But it's a boundary or a limit. We find God's will within the boundaries and limits that he set. So to say a little better what a parameter is, little John Robert and I have a game we play. Well, everybody in our house has to play with him, don't they? It's called hide and seek. That's what we do in my house in the wintertime. Here's the thing. We have parameters for our game. All right? The parameters are, number one, you can't peek. You've got to cover your eyes. That's the first parameter. The other parameter is you've got to count to 30 slowly. Right? And the third parameter is you can only hide on the first floor. The basement is off limits, and the upstairs is off limits. You can only hide. And you can't go outside. You, can only, you wouldn't want to in the winter, but that's our parameters. You have to stay within those limits, or I'm telling him, you're a cheater. Don't do that. You're a cheater. You've got to stay within those limits. So the other day, he talks me into playing hide-and-seek with him. I'm like, all right, count to 30, did all that, and I can't find him on the first floor. I mean, he's pretty good. He has come up with some pretty unique places. But guess what? I find out, what did he do? He had gone upstairs, and I said, John, you're outside the parameters. I didn't use that word. 
But I said, you're a cheater. I did tell him that. I said, man, that's cheating. That's not right. But listen, what if we didn't set parameters? What if we didn't have our parameters or our rules or our limits or our boundaries? You count like this. You count to five instead of 30, right? And you could go anywhere you want if I didn't say, right? So setting parameters does what? It eliminates a lot of options in our game. It really does. It's the difference. The parameters are the difference between he's got to be on that first floor or he can be anywhere in the world to where I might have to find him down in Brazil someday, you know, if I didn't set the print without him. But with him, he, it, things are limited, right? That's the whole point. There's boundaries. And we see that here with Abraham and his servant. Look back at, in chapter th- or verse 3. He says, I will, I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth. And here's the parameters. You shall not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Second parameter, you shall go into the country, into my kindred, and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And the servant said, Peradventure, the woman will not be willing to follow me into this land. Must I needs bring thy son again unto the land from whence thou camest? And Abraham said unto him, Beware that thou... Thou, that thou bring not my son hither again, thither again. So the servant is told what? Where he cannot find a wife. He said, of the daughters of the Canaanites, you do not. That's one parameter there, right? You're not going to find her there. And guess what that parameter did? It eliminated a whole lot of women. In fact, we've all heard of e-harmony. Well, down in Canaan land, they had sea harmony. And when he said that, sea harmony just blew a fuse. Because here's all these potential matches that just went out the door when he did that. And the next parameter he gave down there in verse 4 made it even narrower. narrower. The girl must come from, he said, not only not Canaan land, but has to come from my country and from my people. Anything outside of that, He'd be breaking his vow to God, wouldn't he? He would be. He'd be on the first floor if he didn't do those two things, right? First floor, so to speak, and he'd be a cheater. And he'd have to reckon with the Lord. And the final parameter was that Isaac had to stay in Beersheba. He can't go up to Mesopotamia. Not going to take him there because he wanted to keep him in that land of promise. Didn't want him to get attempted to go somewhere else and settle somewhere else. So Abraham set the parameters, the boundaries, the limits of Eliezer's search. Number one, there is no Canaanite girls. Number two, it's got to come from Abraham's family, the girl does. And number three, Isaac is not going up there to get her. He's going to stay right where he's at. You know, if you preach something like that today in today's church, you know what the cry would be coming up from especially the youth in their 20s? That's legalism. No, it's not legalism. That's called God's wisdom, not legalism. It's God's wisdom, and His Word has set the boundaries because what is that going to do? What are those parameters going to do? It is going to guide His steps, isn't it, Eliezer? It's going to guide His steps where He needs to go. And here's the thing if He will just obey the parameters that God has set, he will have success. Because we see that, look, Abraham knows it. Look what he says in verse 7. The Lord God of heaven, he's like, look, just listen to me, friend. You're worried about this might not work. And Eliezer, he's thinking like a servant. Well, just what if something gets messed up, Abraham? Can I do this? He said, Here's what he says to him. The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spoke unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He says that God, at the end of that verse, he shall send his angel before thee. You do what I say, and God will send his angel with you, before you. And after that, he says, and you shall. That's faith speaking, isn't it? You shall take a wife unto my son from thence. He's not sweating it, because he knows if you do things God's way, God will be there to help you and bless you. That's what's going on there. It's not legalism. So the success of the servant and our success, 
What are we dependent on in our lives as Christians? We are dependent on God's guidance, aren't we? The angel that's there. The angel will go before and he will be a God to Eliezer. And what does that remind us of? It's just like the cloudy pillar that happened in Exodus, isn't it? That cloudy pillar guided them, told them when to leave, when to stay. God guiding their paths. And who is our guide today? The Holy Spirit. Man, people are speaking up. That's great. The prisoners outshout you guys. That's what I'm telling you. But I'm quiet too, so what can I say? But it is. It's the Holy Spirit living within us. And John 14, 15, and 16, what does that Holy Spirit promise to do? To lead and guide our paths, right? God Almighty in us. But how does he do that? How does the Holy Spirit guide our paths? He doesn't do it just any old way, and people are led by spiral. The Lord told me to do this. And guess what? The Lord, you say, that told you to do that, what you're doing, it violates the word. The Holy Spirit, when he leads and guides anyone, does it within the parameters of this word, or it's not the Holy Spirit. Because he's the same one that wrote this Bible. And that's why it's important that we know what the Bible says. And if you've got a decision to make in your life on, we're going to look at who to marry tonight, but it would apply to anything, we have an obligation, don't we? To study what God wants us to do. And this is first and foremost going to guide our paths and keep us off the paths of destruction by going the wrong way. So like I want to say, how does all this relate to us today? Some young person out there, well, you know, that worked for him back then. How will I find a wife or a husband? You know, it, and I would ask the question, has God set parameters, boundaries, and limits to whom Christians can marry? I mean, it kind of goes without saying, doesn't it? And so let's go look at a scripture that all of us could probably quote if we had to. But let's look at it anyways. Second Corinthians, and put something there in Genesis 24. Let's look at Second Corinthians 6. A familiar verse. But one we can all be reminded of because this doesn't just apply to marriage. It applies to business things and all kinds of churches you go to are going to join. So we have in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul writes, Be ye not unequally yoked together with who? Unbelievers. He asks, For what fellowship? has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part has he that believeth with an infidel? Or what agreement? I mean, he uses all these things to say in the same thing in different ways, isn't he? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, because of that, he's saying, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And God says, if you'll do that, what does he say? I will receive you, and I'll be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. That is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It really is. And God is just saying, if you'll just separate yourself from the wicked, from the unbelievers, and what I will be walking in you, guiding you. I will be a father to you, guiding your steps. The Lord God Almighty. And Paul's like, with those kind of promises, a promise like that, shouldn't we be cleansing ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit? perfecting holiness in the Lord? I mean, what greater incentive to be a holy person than to know that God Almighty, the Father, will live and walk and dwell and guide you? I mean, that, that's saying a lot, a lot more than I'm able to say right now. But what is this verse right here? It's God's way of eliminating all the Canaanite women, in this case with marriage, in the Christian's choices, right? So let's think back to Eleazar. So he had to make a long journey. It was a long journey from Beersheba in the Negev all the way up to Mesopotamia. That's a long journey up near the Euphrates River. It was 600 miles it was going to take him to go to obey his master with his 10 camels. 21 days. And you know what he's going to be doing? 
He's going to be cutting all the way through the majority of time through Canaan's fair and happy land. And guess what he's going to be passing by in his 21 days of travel? A lot of pretty Canaanite girls on his journey. He stops for the night with his 10 camels all loaded down with treasures. And some sheik sees him and says, what are all these camels leading down with the goods? What is this all about? And he answers, well, I'm about to get a, a wife from my master, and that's just the down payment for her hand in marriage. And you can just see the guy stroking his beard because he probably had one. A down payment? Ten camels loaded like that? He's like, Have you ever seen my daughter over here, the princess? And she'd be the Canaanite version of Marilyn Monroe. So listen, he's looking at that thinking, man, this would sure make a short journey because I could just take her and I could just park somewhere and drink lemonade in the shade for a while rather than going 21 days up and 21 days back. Because listen, I guarantee you that had to happen. I've watched Ben Hur enough that if you've got a caravan that's loaded with wealth, there are going to be pretty women and sheiks wanting to get a part of that. That's just the way human nature is, isn't it? But what would he have said to him? He'd made that vow. And he served the Lord too. He would have, his answer would have been, I'm sorry. She's awful pretty. She really is. But I've sworn to obey my master, and I'm headed north. That's what he did. We know that. So listen, here's the thing. Getting back to us, you know, if you're a pretty girl or a handsome young man, there are going to be, I guarantee it, a lot of Canaanite boys that are after you. And they'll seem real nice and real interested in you. And they're going to tempt you to break your vow to God. And especially if you go to college. That's what that place is all designed for, especially the first two years. So here's the thing. Why are the Canaanites off limits? Why are unbelievers to us off limits? Well, turn to Deuteronomy 7, and we will see. Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 3. Why are the Canaanites off limits? And this will apply to us just as well. Deuteronomy 7, verses 1, it says, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whither thou goest to possess it, and has cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, you shall smite them and utterly destroy them. You will make no covenant with them or show mercy unto them. Verse 3, neither shall you make marriages with them. Thy daughter shall not give unto his son, thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son, for they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods, and so will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and do we take seriously the last part that that says there? And destroy you suddenly. So let me ask you. Now, look, can I say this before I say anything else? I'm not talking about, I'm not really talking about things that people might have done for whatever reason that's already been done. I'm not saying that God can't work all that out. We got that? <laughs> I can't preach everything tonight. But let me ask you, would a true Christian with their eyes wide open ahead of time, young person in here, anyone, consider marrying or dating an unbeliever? An unbeliever after what we read there and what we read back in 2 Corinthians? I mean, seriously? I'm talking about a true Christian. So if you think that that's really probably not a problem, not that big a deal, well, I would think go and find Solomon and talk to him and ask him what his foreign wives did for him because he sure married a lot of them. Or if you want to know, talk to Samson because you're going to have to talk to him because he ain't going to be able to see it because his eyes got put out because he wasn't happy with the girls in Israel and have to go find him a little Philistine filly. Got him in trouble. And I'm saying there's probably some people in here that have married unbelievers and it just has been a disaster for them that you could talk to. I don't know. Or talk to Isaac and Rebekah, this one that they found the bride for. Because in Genesis 26, it tells us there that Esau married some of those Hittite Canaanite girls. And they both said, these girls he's married in this land, they are nothing but a grief of 
mind. So much so that when it came time for Isaac to tell Jacob to get a wife, basically Isaac said the same thing Abraham did. He said, you go up to our family and get your wife up there. Don't marry one of these girls here because they're nothing but trouble. So you're saying, okay, okay, settle down. I understand. Unbelievers are off limits. They're off limits. I got that. But all believers are fair game, right, based on what we read? Well, here's the thing. Everybody in America is a believer. I mean, is that the case? Look, this survey that was done, 50%, about 50% of churchgoers, people that would go to church, call themselves Christians, 50% don't think premarital sex is wrong, according to a survey I read, a reliable survey. 50% don't think premarital sex is wrong and would call themselves a Christian. 45% of church attenders believe living together before marriage is okay. I mean, 45% is not too far off from 50, is it? I mean, that's unbelievable. It's like they must not even own a Bible, period. I mean, that's, I'm not being funny about it. That's really the way it is. So just because some young man or some young lady says they believe in Jesus and they're nice to you and good-looking doesn't mean that they're within the parameters, does it? So what's the point in justifying that to anyone, especially yourself? <laughs> that that's what you want to do. But listen, think about this. When Paul wrote what we read in 2 Corinthians, not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, at that point in the, Christ, in the Christian world, what was a believer? So he's writing to the Corinthians, right? And what were the Corinthians? We know this. They were spirit-filled, weren't they? They were. People back then were spirit-filled. They believed in the gifts. He said, David, you all came behind a no gift. And you know what that would mean? Well, one of the gifts is the gift of healing. They would have believed in healing. They would have believed in prophecy. They would have believed in having anointed teachers. They would have believed in church discipline. And I mean, no churches today practice church discipline. But they would have. And they would have believed in that and not had a problem with it. We know that from 1 Corinthians 5. They would have thought it's not right to sue somebody to get your money. Because of 1 Corinthians 6, and on and on and on. And I would say that Paul's idea of what a believer was in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is a little different than what Americans will justify as being a Christian. You just have to say you're one. And we've already looked at saying, Lord, Lord, isn't going to get you anywhere in the end, is it? He says, not all. I mean, I would suggest you do it. But you need to have the life to follow with it. It's the point. So for us... If, let's go back to Genesis 24. I think I had us all in Deuteronomy 7. I think there is some significance in Abraham commanding Eliezer to get a bride for Isaac, where he says in verse 4, You shall go to my country and to my kindred. And why do I say that? Because if you read over in 22, they, they knew what was going on with each other. Reports were going back and forth to Abraham, and he knew what was going on up north with his kindred up there. So he knew what his people were like, and they knew all about him, I guarantee it. And they knew he had left all and was wholly devoted to following the Lord God Almighty. They had heard what God had done for him and blessed him. So here's the thing. He sends his servant up there. Any woman that would agree to marry Isaac would herself be agreeing to follow the same God in the same way? Don't you think? She wouldn't have been leading him astray knowing she's going down there. This is the way those people live down there. She's not going to be leading him astray after some other God. And I think a young man or a young woman considering marriage needs to think about what their convictions are in marrying somebody within those convictions. Or you're going to have problems, I think. So we want to say, well, somebody, they're a believer. Are you saying somebody that doesn't speak in tongues isn't saved? You didn't hear me say that because I don't believe that. But I'm talking to people here. And I think if you speak in tongues and you're going to go marry somebody because you say, well, they're, not a, they're a believer, somebody that doesn't speak in tongues, I think you're setting yourself up for problems in your marriage. And if you want to trust the Lord for healing which that is kind of, I think, we, we still preach that here, don't we? We trust the Lord for healing. And your spouse doesn't have that same conviction 
it's going to be a problem. And especially when you start having children. And if your spouse doesn't care about reading the Bible much, searching the Bible to find out what you should do as a family or relying on God, don't you think if you do and they don't, that might be a little bit of an issue? I think it would be. Or what about spanking a woman's role in the house? You got somebody, they don't care what the Bible says about a woman's role in the house. Not going to look at those parameters because I am going to be a career woman. And you're thinking, I just want a Psalm, Proverbs 31 woman. And she's like, that doesn't fit my mold. But I'm a believer, and you married a believer. Something to think about, right? Or what about the girls? Do you want to marry some man that is not spiritual enough to lead your house? Because that is a major problem in all churches in America. Women are the one, tend to be the more spiritual ones and the ones that pray and read their Bibles and not the men. So as a woman, do you want to marry some man like that? What about having children? You, you know, you want to have a follow what the Bible says and replenish the earth. But this person, they don't want to have any kids. You don't think that's going to be a problem? Or they have to have a big income. It's not seek ye first the kingdom. It's seek ye first the big income. And the kingdom of God's on the side. And you don't think that would be a problem? I think it would be. And the list could go on. So look, here's the thing. What I'm not saying, I could marry a girl that had a different view, say, of when the rapture took place. I don't, personally, that wouldn't disqualify somebody, in my opinion. Or just because they just don't see foot washing should be a literal thing. I'm saying to me, that wouldn't disqualify somebody for me, right? But when it comes to certain core convictions, like tongues, healing, raising children, trusting God for finances, whatever, I think you'll have problems if you're not in agreement on those areas. And so you're out there thinking, oh, man, you're really narrowing the field down now, Brother John. And on the basis of what you're saying, the pickings are slim here. And I'm saying, believe me, I understand that. And I'm going to tell you why. I understand why you might think that, a young person in here. So I got saved when I was 21 years old. And by the grace of God, I, I could, I, me and you could have a debate on who was nastier. But <laughs> I went from being a nasty, that's all I'm going to say, party and worldly sinner and like I said, by the grace of God, God gave me a heart that was dedicated to doing his will. I mean, for me, it was a total transformation. It really was. I mean, this girl, her uh, uncle lived next door to my sister. My sister told her I got saved. This is out of high school. And she's like, man, if John Solinger could get saved, anybody could get saved. And I'm like, huh. But now I would agree with her. <laughs> I was a little offended at the time, but whatever. But I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the night I was saved. And the church I joined was like this one, pretty much exactly like this one, except we met in a living room, and there was 20 people that came to that meeting, maybe even less initially. Somebody's living room with a few chairs. And the only girls in that church, I'm 21, was a high school girl named Tammy that was nice, but let me just put it this way, she wasn't my type. And there was one other girl that was more my age, and she wasn't my type either, but she was nice. They were both nice. I had nothing to do with it. But for my first time after I got saved, I knew I needed, I'm thinking to myself, I, I, this marriage thing and girls and all that, I'm, I'm, I don't need all that. I had enough of that before. I just want to get grounded in the word and know what I believe. And that's what I did before I even think about marriage. But here's the thing, just because that was my plan, that doesn't mean it was other people's plans. Because when I got saved, I worked in an insurance company and it was full of girls my age. And there was this bunch of them that had gotten quote-unquote saved, going to this church that was all worldly, and they were constantly trying to set me up with these girls. Say, well, they're, I'd say, I'd, I'd, if they're not, you know, whatever, I'm not interested. Well, they're Christians, and you just got saved. And frankly, some of them were pretty. They really were. But I decided in my heart the only girl I would marry would be a girl that would attend the church I did or one like it and believed the same. Because I knew otherwise I was going to have problems, even at age 21, big problems, to marry one of these other girls that were, quote, unquote, a Christian and a believer. So I made it a commitment to the Lord when I got saved to put him first no matter what, and I wanted to marry someone that I felt had the same commitment. 
That was just me. So after about a year, I think it was about a year or so, I felt like I'm kind of ready to start praying about a wife to get married. But the church situation I had had not changed at all. It was still the two girls and the 20 people. And here's my thinking. I'm like, well, I mean, this is what I'm looking at. And I think I'm ready to get married. And I said, Lord, if my cross is to marry this high school girl that I'm not really attracted to, then thy will be done. I kid you not. That's what I, I was down in the basement and prayed that. And all I can say is I'm sure she's in the movies now. Okay? So nothing. <laughs> that was just me. But I went and talked to my older sister about this. And maybe this will help somebody. Maybe it won't. And I told her, I said, you know, I'm, if God wants me to marry her, I mean, she's nice and all that. I'm just really not attracted to her, you know. I said, I guess I'm willing to do that, you know. And she said, hey, her answer to me was, she said, look, Isaac, David, Jacob, they married beautiful women. And she said, there's no sin in that. And she said, I think you should marry somebody you're attracted to and not feel guilty about it. And I'm saying, I think that's good advice. I don't think you should marry somebody for their looks, but I don't think you should have to marry somebody in spite of their looks. I'm saying, I think God can give you somebody you're compatible with, right? If, if that's coming through. But I'll tell you, I thought it was good advice, and it sure took a burden off my shoulders. That's all I can tell you. But here I'm looking at this church situation here, and I'm thinking, well, who's going to come to this church with what we all preach and believe, right? I mean, my prospects in the natural looked dim. They really did. But I began to seek the Lord daily in prayer for a while. And I'm going to make a long story short. One day, this friend of Carrie Deal starts coming to our meeting, and she wants the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And our first conversation went like this. I asked her, I said, have you ever been to a charismatic meeting before? And Lisa says, no. And I said, okay, well, you'll like it. And I got up and walked away. It's a great start. <laughs> That's the way it went. But here's the thing. I'm saying, I heard the teaching about dating, I'd, I knew that all that was said about that, I'd played the dating game where you're acting like you're married with somebody, nobody else messes with her. You got all the marriage commitments, but without the vows. I've been through all that. I didn't need that stuff. I've been through that. I knew how all the, that game played, and I saw that God had a better way. And I was grateful for the teaching that I heard at the time about that. And Lisa and I never dated. We did things in groups, mainly with Greg and Carrie, and we talked on the phone some. But I was watching her the whole time. I didn't tell her that, but I wasn't stalking her. I was watching her. <laughs> Golly, you got to watch what you say. But here's the thing. I wanted to see if she was dedicated to the Lord no matter what. <laughs> That's what I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, I got myself messed up here. So I wanted to see how dedicated she was. So I'm, I'm talking to her, looking, just kind of watching her. And I hadn't really, there was really no commitment made at that point. And, but when I became convinced of that and after more prayer, I'm kind of not filling in everything. But, you know, eventually I asked her to marry me. And she agreed to do that. So <laughs> on the night I asked her to marry me, we went out to eat. And afterwards, we went to tell our pastor and his wife the good news. And so when Lisa went to go home, I walked her out to her car and she got in, and I was standing in the street, out, literally out in the street talking to her. And I thought, well, here's what I'm thinking. I said, we agreed not to kiss until we were married, but, you know, after all, this is a big night, just one time, you know. So I leaned over in the window where she was in the driver's seat, and I said, asked her if I could just have one kiss since we just got engaged. And she looked up at me, and she says, no. And she rolled up the window and drove off. <laughs> I kid you not, and I am staying. And it was raining that night. And I had a suit on, and my mom had bought me this nice trench coat. I'm standing in the street, in a wet street in the mist, watching her drive off in a trench coat, feeling like a fool. <laughs> and that is literally what happened. I went in and told that pastor and his wife what happened. I mean, he was slapping his knee crying when I told him all that. But that's exactly what happened. So I'm saying all that to say this, if this helps anybody out. We never held hands. We never kissed. And we never had any intimate contact until the day we were married. But here, let me tell you that. You're like, oh, man, icky you on you. But I'll tell you one thing I can say. We never had to repent or regret anything we did through our courtship. 
never did. And I'll tell you, after 30 years of marriage, getting back to what I was saying a little bit earlier, I'll tell you what I have never heard from my wife. I've never heard her ask me, what's the big deal about speaking in tongues? That's never been a conversation we've had. Or she's never asked me, why do we have to trust God for healing and finances? Never had to deal with that. Or what are you doing spanking our kids? I've never had to hear that either. Or why do you always quote the Bible when I ask why we do something? I've never heard that. Or I've never heard, what's the big deal about hearing preaching from the Bible? I've never had to deal with any of those things. But we've had our moments. I'll tell you, we've had our moments. We're two strong-willed people. And I'm thankful to say they're fewer and further between. But I've told my wife this many times, and that's it. I have never regretted our marriage once. I've never thought I should have married someone else. I've always thought that God's hand was in it. I'll tell you how much God's hand was in it. She, before we met, had a vision that God showed her the person she was going to marry. There was books stacked up all around. And I'm telling you, if you saw my office and where I am most of the time, that is a vision that came to pass. So... But, and I've said, told her, I can't imagine. I literally, I cannot imagine being married to someone else. And God has not only made us compatible about what we believe about the Bible and the Word, but we've also always enjoyed the same things. Same humor, friends, walks, books, whatever. And we've walked through financial trials, healing trials, spiritual trials together. I've seen my wife at death's door several times, but always willing to trust the Lord. And all I can say is, I thank God that he sent me a godly wife like that. Amen. I really do. And I'd, so my encouragement to those of you that are believing for a mate or coming to age is, hey, God will do it. Just like Abraham told his servant, you stay within his parameters and the parameters of your convictions. God will bless you. At first, you've got to make sure you're sold out to him, dedicated to following the Lord. And then study the Bible for what's desirous in a mate. That's what you want, right? See what those parameters are and then stay within the parameters of God's word and your own convictions. So we know, hey, unbelievers in the Canaanites are off limits, aren't they? That, that goes without saying. But I think you want somebody with your core convictions, someone you can say, he or she is of my people. That doesn't mean just in Shelbyville, what I'm saying, compatible in your beliefs. They're your people in that sense. And then I'd make it a matter of earnest prayer. I would. I wouldn't just say, well, God will somehow work it out or just keep looking around and thinking nothing's ever changing. I think you need to make it a matter of prayer. And one verse I always meditated on, I'd, I'd claimed a wife and asked God to give me a wife and believed he would do it. But I still was interceding about it and praying in the spirit about it. And I was always meditate on James 5, 16, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Think about that. I'm not doing this in vain. I've asked the Lord to provide a wife, and I believe through my intercession he will. And there she sits back there. I call her Blondie, my wife. So here I've spent a lot of time tonight talking about applying the principles of God's parameters to finding a mate. But wouldn't that... Can't we just apply that out to any area of our life? I mean, doesn't he have parameters in his word about how Christians should receive their healing? I think he does, and they're pretty clear. What about church discipline? There's not, he has a lot to say about that in parameters and how to deal with sin we see in our brothers or sin that happens. Isn't there a lot in there about that we should know about? Or a missionary in his message. I think there's more in the Bible about that than most people have bothered to check out. You're a missionary, what should your message be? How, how should you relate to these people you're going to? And what about parameters on jobs, whether they're scriptural or not? And if you have a job and you're self-employed, what about your ethics? The Bible has a lot to say about that. Your billing practices things you do or don't do, there's a lot of parameters. You can read through Leviticus and find a whole lot of principles in there. I mean, do you take advantage with somebody because you know they got a lot of money and you just lost some money on a job from someone else and you can give them a price and you know that they're not even going to think about it because they got so much money. Is that fair? Is that a just balance because you can get away with it? 
things like that. So there's parameters, boundaries, guidelines God gives us in his word. And here's what they're going to do. They are going to severely limit options for an earnest Christian seeking to do his will, won't they? It's open to the world. Man, when you're in the world, it's like whoever you want to marry, because you don't even have to worry about if it doesn't work out, just divorce them and get somebody else. It's the dating game with the marriage certificate. They don't worry about that, but we're limited, right? And that's why the Christian walk is called what? The narrow way, because that's what the parameters God has do to us. They put us in a narrow way. But listen to this. Within, though, those narrow parameters are what? It's the blessing of God is found there. It really is. And more importantly, within those parameters, when you walk in them, just like that servant found out, you've got God's presence and his guiding hand that you don't have outside of them. And I'm saying God will lead us and guide us to his will by the path of his truth. He'll lead us and guide us to his will by the path of his truth. I want to close with this. Listen to these psalms. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior and my hope is in you all day long. Or this one, he guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. I will instruct thee, Brother Hamilton likes this one, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. Isn't that what we've been saying tonight? And he goes on, I will guide thee with my eye. He'll have his eye on you as he's guiding you and instructing you the way you should go. Or what about this, Psalm 43? Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. That's how you'll find God. By letting his truth guide your steps. It'll take you to him. And isn't that what we want? Now, what about this one? The psalmist said, I am always with you, speaking to God. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me to glory. That last psalm, let me say that psalm again. The psalmist says, I am always with you. God is always with him. He is always with God. You hold me by my right hand. God does. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. And I'll tell you, that reminds me, a great preacher a few years ago said this. He said, God is a loving, heavenly Father. That's what that psalm's saying. And he said this, all he's asking us to do in here, in this message of faith and holiness, is he's extending down his hand to us. And he's saying, I'm your father, you're my children. Just put your hand up in mine. And let me guide you through this world of tribulation and trouble. Because I'll always be with you. That's what we just read. And I'll take you through and I'll bring you to safety. I've got your best interest. You know, my little boy, John, he gets in a parking lot. He doesn't pay attention to anything. And cars are ready to back over. I'm like, wait a minute. John, you're not even paying attention where you're going. They can't see you. You don't know where you're going, what's going on. He's clueless. And I tell him, here, give me your hand. And he gives me my hand. He doesn't worry. He wasn't worrying before. But he's got my hand. He's not worrying. You know why? Because am I going to take my little boy and just stick him right in front of some guy's bumper that's going back and out so I can see him get hurt? No way. I'm going to direct his steps to safety, and he's going to be always with me, isn't he? And he he trusts in that. He's not worrying. You don't see little kids worrying holding their dad's hand, do you? I don't. And God says that's what he'll do for us. He's got to put our hands in him. Just trust what he's saying here in this word. Just walk in this path that he's given us. And he'll be with us and guide us. And what does it say? And afterwards, he'll take us into glory. Can't get any better than that. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for speaking to us tonight, and I just ask you, Lord, that you'll put it in all of our hearts to just seek your word and 
not take for granted this word you've given us, these guidelines you've given us that we can learn to walk with you and that you can be our God and lead and guide our steps. And in the end, Lord, present us to yourself saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You were faithful to do my Father's will. And I just ask you'll make that real to all of us, Lord, and impress it on our hearts. And we just thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.